and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast by Opus Partners. I'm your host, Seb McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And today on the show, we're talking about growth versus yield properties. What's the actual difference? And I recently had a question sent to me by Craig, who said, Hey Ed, don't understand the premise that growth properties increase in value faster than yield properties. If this was true, then in 100 years, a yield property would be worth almost nothing, while a growth property would be affordable by only the very wealthy, especially if you include your projection rates of 4 to 5% growth versus target inflation of 2 to 3%. Cheers, Craig. Craig had some other questions too, just so you know, around affordability, long-term growth. I flicked through to the relevant podcast episodes. Now, there are two parts to this. First, there's the difference between growth and yield properties. And then there's that affordability question. But let's start with growth and yield. Andrew, what is a growth property for anybody new to the show? So growth property increases in value faster than other types of properties. But it generally doesn't get as good a rental return. So usually this would be something like a house or a townhouse. Now, compare that to a yield property, which generally speaking doesn't go up in value as quickly but it gets a much better rental return. You get higher rent from it. That's normally something like an apartment or a dual-key apartment or a room-by-room rental. Now, before we get into the data to show that this is actually the case, what is the reason that a yield property grows more slowly? Well, yield properties are usually configured to get more yield. So what I mean by that is rather than just have a five-bedroom house, you might have five individual rooms with a kitchenette in there and then a shared lounge or dining room or something like that. For example, the townhouses that we did in Hamilton that are close to the university. So they're set up so each person can rent a room, and then you have your little common area. But because you're charging on a per-room basis, you get a much higher rental income. And the key there is that the bedrooms are big, the common areas are small, because people are paying for the room, not necessarily the common area. Yeah, now they're great yield. But who's going to be the buyer when you sell that property in 20 years' time? Now, it's not going to be a mum and dad who are going to look at it and go, oh, this is perfect for us to raise Susie and Jimmy. They're not going to fall in love with it. They're not going to buy a big studio apartment with kitchenette for and bathrooms in each. You're only going to sell this to an investor. And an investor is like someone buying a commercial property. They're only really making their decision based on what the rental yield is. So the value of the property tends to be a multiplier of whatever that rental income is coming in. So the value of the property only tends to go up based on the rental income because mum and dad aren't going to look at something like that thinking, oh, great, little Susie's always wanted a kitchen in her her bedroom. She really needs that. And, oh, little Jimmy, he'll be so stoked with that. They'll probably be thinking, we don't want a kitchen in the kids' rooms. They'll probably flood the place. Okay, because a yield property is specifically configured to get good yields, In doing that, it's going to make them less attractive. It's going to make that property less attractive to owner-occupiers, which is going to limit who you can resell the property to, and that's why we apply a growth discount. But compare that to a growth property. So growth properties, as I said before, a townhouse or a house. Typically, in property investment circles, we say that owner-occupiers tend to bid up the prices. And that's because they see a property as an emotional purchase. They see it as their dream home and decide, oh, I, I want to live here, or I want this to be my first home, my next home, my forever home. This is where I want to raise Susie and Jimmy. It's close to their schools. They're making a purchase driven by emotion. So when they see a more normal house, townhouse or a house, compared to a dual-key apartment or a room-by-room rental, 
that's what's driving up that price. That's why, generally speaking, you get higher capital growth. So the key thing here, though, is do we actually see this in the data? So it's all very well coming up with these stories about why there might be differences in capital growth, but it doesn't mean anything unless we actually see it in the numbers. Now, unfortunately, there's no solid data that splits things out. I can't go into the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand database and say, show me data on growth properties. Show me data on yield properties. Those don't exist. But what we do have is really good data comparing apartments, which would typically say are a yield property, versus townhouses and houses, which we've called growth properties. And consistently, what we see over the long term is that apartments, yield properties, get substantially lower capital growth than houses and townhouses. So what I often do when running this data is I'll average it out over a 10-year period because that is the length of time that an investor is likely to hold a property, especially with today's bright line test. So if you look at the average compounding annual capital growth rate over any 10-year period, and I look at it over the past 30 years, what I see is that on average, apartments grow in value 3.1% less per year in Auckland. So about a third less. Sometimes half. So if a house is going up at 6% a year, an apartment's going up at 2.9% per oh, year. Wow. If a house was going up at 9% per year, the apartment's going up at 5.9% per year, on average. Now, in Wellington City, it's a bit different. It's about a 1.7% difference. So if a house is going up by 5%, the apartment's going up by 3.3%. So we do see quite a large difference between properties that we would typically call a yield property and properties that we would typically call a growth property. Now, remember here at Opus Partners, when we're doing our forecasting, we apply a 1.5% growth discount. So if a house is going up by 6%, your apartment's going up by 4.5%. And when you look at the actual data from Auckland and Wellington City, you'd say that's probably pretty generous or pretty conservative when looking at yield properties as well. But Andrew, let's make this even more practical. Can you give us a real example of two properties that maybe you own, maybe you've looked at, a growth of the yield property, and just show us how the capital growth has been different over time. So one of the old properties that I purchased actually 13 years ago, that has doubled in value and then some over the time that I've owned it. So, so that's gone up pretty quickly. Compare that to one that I looked at last year that I ended up not buying. Now, this was an inner city apartment and I was buying it for all the wrong reasons. I was buying it because I thought, oh, this would be a great place for me to get changed before a webinar. I can Airbnb out. I was falling into that trap that I tell investors not to fall into that I was going to use it myself and there was some emotion attached to that decision. Now, I looked back at the data on that property and while it had gone up in value quite a lot over the last couple of years when I was looking at it, before that, it had basically not gone up at all for about eight years, like virtually nothing. Think $5,000. Oh, not a lot at all. No. So if your property doubled in value in, say, 12 years, how much would that property have increased over the prior 12 years that you'd looked at it? About 33%. Okay, so your growth property doubled in value in 12 years. The yield property went up by about 33% yeah. over that same period. And when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, it makes a big difference. Now, Craig had a great question, which is, but won't a growth property be way more than a yield property in 100 years' time? So I've got some numbers for you. Let's say that you're buying a property, or you have the choice to buy a growth or a yield property. And today, they are both worth a million dollars. 
Well, if you take our model, we say growth property 5%, yield property 3.5%. What happens over the next 100 years? Well, yes, that's the sound of our time machine because we've now <laughs> transported ourselves into the future. The year is now 2123. And that growth property that was worth a million dollars 100 years ago is now worth $131 million. And the yield property is worth about $31 million, just over. And so the growth property, and remember these properties were worth exactly the same amount 100 years ago. Now the growth property is worth over four times that of the yield property. And Craig is saying, well, do you really think that's going to happen? Do you really think that if the properties are the same amount today, that one's going to be worth four times the amount in 100 years' time? And look, the honest answer is I don't really know. Because if I think about 100 years ago, God, life was different. Did you know that 100 years ago, everything was black and white? <laughs> oh, that's my joke. Did you like yeah. that? Yeah. Was it your joke? I don't yes. know. Yes. 100 years ago, people still rode around on horses. We were recovering from the First World War. A loaf of bread in the States cost nine cents. Today, we've got iPhones and laptops and cars and different types of wars, unfortunately. And the bread that I buy from Bohemian Bakery in Christchurch oh, or Amano. Ri- you rich capitalist investor. Or Amano, when in Auckland, costs $12. And if I think about what's going to happen at 100 years' time, we could be living on Mars if Elon Musk has his way. <laughs> but I also know that I'm not investing for 100 years. I'm investing for 20 to 30 years. So that's where we need to ask ourselves a different question. Could we realistically foresee that a growth property and a yield property might continue to increase at different rates over the next 30 years? So, Andrew, walk us through those numbers again with those same $1 million properties, one growth, one yield, but looking at, say, 20 years into the future rather than 100 years into the future. Okay, so take those $2 million properties again. Do you think that a $1 million property today could be worth $1.7 million in today's dollars in 20 years' time. Well, yes, I think they could. So what have you done there? You've increased it by 5%. But now I've brought that back to today's dollars by adjusting for inflation. And we're only looking 20 years into the future. Correct. And then let's say, do you think a yield property could be worth $1.34 million in today's dollars in 20 years' time? Well, yeah, I think that's pretty reasonable as well. And do you think that it's reasonable for a growth property to increase by 33% more than a yield property. So 450k? Yeah, I do think so. Over a 20-year period. So let me just get this straight in my head. So the growth property, you're saying it's worth a million dollars today. In 20 years' time, at 5% growth, and we inflation adjust the numbers, could it be worth 1.7? And I think most people would say 20 years is probably pretty reasonable. And what about that yield property? Could it go from a million to 1.35? Yeah, it probably could. Would it be reasonable that some properties are going to increase by 450k more than others? Yeah, depending on location, depending on what you're buying, depending on how it's configured. So that's where you could say, okay, I agree with you, Craig, that when you look 100 years into the future for almost anything, the growth rates look astronomically silly. Just like if you looked at what happened in history over the last 100 years and said to the guy, rocking around on his horse, whether we'd all be rolling around in cars and some guy would be launching rockets into the air thinking that we're going to live on different planets, they would have thought we were off our heads. (laughs) 
because when you look 100 years in the future, things start to really look silly. But I do want to also come back to the affordability question. So Craig asked me, do I think that 4 to 5% capital growth is realistic when inflation is 2 to 3%? Now, here's the thing. Everybody thinks about inflation when they think about properties going up in value. How is the property going to go up in value by 5% if inflation's 2%? You're looking at the wrong number. Inflation does not suggest whether something is affordable or not. It's all down to household income growth. So properties are affordable based on people's incomes, not based on how expensive the price of cheese is going up. That's inflation. Inflation is the price of haircuts, the price of ice cream, the price of cheese. What you really want to focus on is... Such a weird selection for a vegan. Yes. But that's what inflation is. Well, vegans get their hair cut too. <laughs> so the rate at which incomes go up is about 4%, not 2%, 4%. And I remember actually when I said this stat, I had one of our property partners, our financial advisors, Derry, say to me, hang on. So if inflation's 2% and household incomes go up by 4%, that means people are getting better off over time. Yes, over the long term, that is true. Incomes are increasing faster than the cost of living. And one of the funny things that I remember, Andrew, you always talk about parents going out for dinner, that back in the day, our parents never went out for dinner. Never. I remember our parents would get fish and chips on a Friday. That was it. That was their going out for dinner. And on the bad weeks of the month for dad's pay, it was just chips. You might get some white bread to put them in and some sauce. Yeah. And people would spend less. Well, you wouldn't go out to bars and restaurants all the time like you do. Well, yes, but I'm, I'm not necessarily my parents either. But if, even if I look at their lifestyle now, they'd be doing that a lot more frequently. People's lives are getting better Absolutely. over time. And so we will start to spend more. Doesn't necessarily mean like we're saving more no. or feel like we're saving more if we go out and spend more. But people's lifestyles do get better over time. And that creates the ability to spend more on things like property. And we've also got a factor in things like population growth. If there's more people, that's going to create demand. If we've got people coming in from overseas, perhaps they've sold really expensive properties in China or Australia. If they move here, they feel like they're rich because they're buying property in a relatively cheaper market if you're coming from somewhere like Melbourne or Sydney. And of course, the other thing that people forget about in terms of property prices going up over time is that about a third of households in New Zealand do not have a mortgage. So if I've bought a property for $500,000 and my mortgage is 500k, and 10 years later my property is worth a million dollars and my mortgage is down to 300k, then I can sell my property and I can go and spend an extra 200k and only bring my mortgage back up to what it was only 10 years ago. So what a lot of people forget about, or one of the issues that a lot of people make, is that they treat everybody or they think that everybody is a first-home buyer. But actually, if you've been in the property market and you've owned property for 20 years, your property has gone up in value substantially. Your mortgage is probably quite low, if not paid off. So if you want to go in and compete with other people to buy a nicer house, it's really easy for you to do that because you could just take out a slightly higher mortgage. And can you bid the price of a property up by another $100,000? Absolutely, you can do that because 75% of the market are not first home buyers. They're people who are already in the market and so have more borrowing ability and can bid up house prices. And I think that's what's often missed in this discussion. Now, a lot of people will think, well, that means that first home buyers are never going to be able to buy property. No, that's not the case because first home buyers will change the types of properties that they buy. 
So they might decide that they're going to buy cheaper properties like townhouses as opposed to standalone houses, which your parents might have bought when they were first starting out. Or maybe even apartments. So I just got back from Singapore last week and the level of apartment living there, that's just the standard. Like to get something that was a townhouse is just blow someone's mind, let alone, you know, something with a bit larger piece of land. It might just be that we've got higher and higher density to come. As you are starting out in the property market, and then you might climb that ladder. Now, so effectively what we are saying is some people might decide to start out with a yield property, transition to growth later on, depending on what is actually affordable for them. But that's the reason why I do think that you can have some properties growing at faster rates than others, and that's why we have growth and yield properties. Right, let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you're a first home buyer and you're thinking, what sort of property do I buy? Then what I want to mention is we have two events coming up, first home buyer events coming up. We've got one in Christchurch and one in Auckland, both at the end of March, absolutely free to come along to. So what I'm going to do is drop a link to that in the show notes. If you want to come along to those or know somebody who would get a lot of value out of that, then tap or swipe over the cover art, links down in there. And we're going to be talking about how you apply the concepts from our book when buying your first home so you can eventually build an investment property portfolio. listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Steve McKnight. I'm Andrew Nicholl. We're going to be back here tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most of the Zealand property market. Until next time.